Good morning, folks. Good morning. Come on, I settle down. <laughs> Not sure where I was there, whether it was in the cattle market or, or what. <laughs> folks, it's lovely to see you. Uh, we just want to welcome you all to our service this morning. And especially if you're a visitor this morning, you're very specially welcome. And we hope that you'll really be blessed as you worship with us this morning. A very special welcome to Mr. John Ellis, who's a, an old friend from Kilkenny, and he's taking the service this morning. Sam is on holidays for a couple of weeks. And I would advise you to enjoy this morning, enjoy John, because next week you're going to have to listen to me. If you want to open your church news and diary there, just want to remind you that at the front here, beside the organ, we'll have prayer ministry after the service. So if there's something weighing on you, or if you just want to give thanks for something, please come up and the people will be glad to pray with you. As I've said, Sam's still away. And if you need uh, a minister for anything, if you'd give Stuart a ring and his numbers on the on the paper there. International Cafe will be on again next Friday. So if you're an international student, we would ask you to come along to that where you'll get a, a good meal and a chance to use your English with some native speakers. And... Uh, a chance to make friends and have a good time. I think the rest of those now are, they've been on for a while, so not bother with those. One last thing here. IBI is putting on a pastoral care workshop, and it's going to happen on the 11th of May. The cost is 40 euro, and uh, It'll be very useful for anybody who's interested in getting involved in pastoral care. If you'd like to find out more about it, if you'd speak to Heather Moore, she'll be able to uh, bring you up to date. I think that's everything, so I'll just hand over to John now and let him lead us in worship. Good morning, everybody. And... Um it's a pleasure to be back. Um, get sorted here. So, I'm very glad to be here again, and it's nice to be welcomed and have people smiling at you at the beginning anyway, you know, but we'll see how it, we'll see how it goes as we go on. So we're here to worship God this morning, <coughs> and uh, I'm sorry if my voice is uh, odd, um, I've been uh, under the weather, um, I have man flu, as my wife said, so um, hopefully I won't give it to the children when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm spitting on top of them in a few minutes, but we're going to worship God this morning, and I just want to read... Um, a couple of verses from Psalm 19. Now, I presume you are aware that Psalm 19 is, it just lays out how God reveals himself to us through creation, through his word, and then at the very end, there's the hint that the fullest revelation is going to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what it says. <clears throat> this is what God's word, or God says about his own word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteousness. They are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And as we know, that when God's word is publicly read and when it is, um, when we come to med meditate upon it, 
that God has promised a blessing to his people. So let's stand and sing. We're going to sing two um, hymns at the beginning. The first is As We Are Gathered, and then uh, the second one is Father of Creation. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer that your fragrance and your presence would be among us this morning. We are coming here this morning, maybe some of us, uh, because we have to, we're made to come, but hopefully, Lord, in the main, we are here because we want to be here. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the fact that at a particular time in our lives that you opened our hearts to our great need. And Lord, you showed us the desperate state of our lives and of our eternal soul. And then you showed us the way out in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we thank you. And so we're here this morning because this is the way you have ordained, that your people should live and should be built up and blessed. It's through the gathering together of your people. As we gather around to sing your praises, as we meditate upon a portion of your scriptures, that you have said you would presence yourself amongst us. And so, Lord, as we read your word, as we sing the hymns, as we again meditate upon portions of scripture, we know that you are here amongst us. Lord, we ask you now that you would help us to realize that in spite of our sin, in spite of the things that we have left undone during the week, in spite of the things that we have done, which we deliberately did, and just went headlong into whatever. Yet, Father, you are gracious and good. And you have said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we come as we are, because we can't come any other way. We come as helpless, broken people. We come as sinful people. We come as people that, if you took your hand off us for a moment, that we would just run headlong into a lost eternity. But yet we have the great promises that have said that once you have taken hold, that once you have justified, that, Lord, you will glorify. So as we continue on in the service, may we know your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, lads, I'm going to talk to ye now. I have to turn on this. Now, can I ask you... Um, me now yep that uh, cool dudes you all stay over there do you well, there's no room for you here so look i'll tell you what i'll sit here well i need to stand up for a minute how is your how is your imagination have you a good imagination have you what about you huh too cool to imagine maybe is that it okay but here imagine me as a baby how's that are you laughing at <laughs> with a beard or without a beard can you imagine it can you imagine it yeah you can imagine me as a baby imagine that you could lift me up in your arms and swing me from side to side now imagine me as a toddler I'm about a one and a half right and when I say this tell me what I'm talking about start with G lads because not that long ago I'm looking for a baba. What am I looking for? Everybody starts stare in the direction of the cool dudes until we get an answer. I'm looking for a baba. What am I looking for? A what? Oh, here, that's help them out. What's a baba? What? What? A bottle? I don't know what you're laughing at. It is a bottle. That's what I'm looking for. A baba. We'll try again, boys. I want a sucky. Oh, well done. What about, I have one more. I'm looking for my, no, you probably won't get this, but we'll try it anyway. I'm looking for my Teddy O'Sullivan. Exactly. A Teddy with one eye. 
I had a teddy bear, and he was so old that one of his eyes fell out, and my dad christened him Teddy O'Sullivan. Imagine that, Teddy O'Sullivan, he, he, he christened him. Now, you'll wonder where all this is going, but it's going somewhere. I have a grand nephew, right? Because I'm getting old. I have a granddaughter, and I have a grand nephew who has what he calls a bunny, right? He has a bunny, a, a bunny, a bunny rabbit, right? Now, before I tell you the story about the bunny rabbit, I want to see how good, what's your biblical knowledge, right? Bright lights, cool boys. Tell me about Adam and Eve. Tell me something about Adam and Eve. They lived in the Garden of Eden. Anything else? I'm going to have to get a drink now because I'm getting all nervous as you look at me. What else? What else? What did they do after they disobeyed God? They ate an apple, but what did they do then? They ran away. Is that right, lads? Did they run away? They did run away, and they hid. And what happened then? Did God leave them there? What did he do? Well, he did, I suppose, in one way, but he came looking for them, didn't he? He actually came looking for them. And when he came to Adam and he says, why did you do what you did? What did Adam say? Huh? What? Exactly. It was her fault. And when God turned around to Eve and said, why did you do what you did? What did Eve say? The serpent told me. So what, was, what were they all doing? Blaming somebody else. Tell me, when do we start blaming somebody else? Yes, when you get into trouble. But at what age do you start blaming somebody else? When you're having a child. When you're what? When you're having a child. Bring her to the child, okay. Anybody else, any... Cool dudes, any idea? No? When you're, when you're what? Four. Okay. Huh? When you have another sibling, good man. But what if you don't have a sibling? Who are you going to blame then? Let me tell you this. This really happened, right? Huh? The air, you, blame, you could blame the air. There's people who blame worse, yeah. What? You can blame it on your dog. Exactly. Well, wait till you hear this story. Adam is his name as well, by the way. His mammy was in the bed. You know, his mammy's are in the morning, really tired and everything. And next minute, Adam came up the stairs. And he was standing beside the bed. And he said, mammy, mammy, bunny bold. Bunny bold. He said, what? He said, bunny bold. What are you talking about? And he put out his hand and he tapped her on the, on the hand. And she said, bunny, bunny bold, bunny bold. And his hand was covered in sticky stuff or something. It was all over her face. And she jumped out and she said, what do you have to do? Bunny bold, bunny broke eggs, bunny bold. So she brought him downstairs, right? Brought him, brought him downstairs. Went into the kitchen. And here on the kitchen, the fridge door was open, right? And there was eggs all over it. And he looks at her and he says, bunny bold, bunny bold. And here was the bunny sitting in the fridge. <laughs> here was the bunny sitting in the fridge. Now, we think that's funny, don't we? Yeah, we do. And we laugh at that and we say, oh, he's lovely. Oh, he's so innocent. Oh, everything. But lads. It really shows us, and I know you hear this every week, without Jesus, there's no hope for any of us. No hope. Because there's a verse in the Bible that says that if you break the law in one part, no, I'm not saying Adam broke the law because he was only a little baby, but he was well able to blame even though he was a little baby. I'm not saying anything like that, but what the Bible says is that if you break the law in one part, it's the same as if you broke the whole lot of it. 
Can you remember your first sin? No. Anybody remember their first sin? I don't remember my first sin anyway. I don't think anybody remembers their first sin. That first sin is your undoing. Because even that first sin needs Jesus to die on the cross. So don't ever say, and don't let anybody tell you, Do your best. That's all God expects. Because what God expects is perfection. In order for each and every one of us here in this building, in order for anybody, wherever they are in the world, in order to get into heaven, you need to be 100% perfect. Any of you perfect here? What? What are you going to do then? Ask him. Okay, what's he going to do? He's not perfect. You need to be perfect to get into heaven. What's he going to do? Good man. That's exactly it. That's what you need to do. I know you hear it all the time. And I know as you get older, it'll start washing all over the top of your head. But that's what you need. You need to be perfect to get into heaven. And you can't do it on your own. And the only one that can do it for you Jesus and that's why he came and that's why he died so that you could spend eternity with him okay very good for listening we're going to sing another hymn now well done lads if you turn in your Bibles then um, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4 and we're going to break into the middle of the chapter there, and we're going to read verses 17 to 24. So it's Ephesians chapter 4, and it's page 1175 in the Pew Bible. Let's hear God's word. So I tell you this, and and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, such as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that it is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, this is the holy word of God. This is the word that was breathed forth by you. You have protected it and overseen it since the beginning. And so we can depend upon it for our very eternal souls. So as we come to look at this portion of scripture, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, open our eyes and our ears, and help us, Lord, to understand something of what we're going to say. And Lord, I pray that above it all, underneath it all, around all that I have to say, that your voice would be the voice to be heard. And in spite of what I might say, Lord, that you would speak to your people. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if I told you this before, but I went to, the play, I went to a play one time called The Field. Remember John B. Keane's The Field? And it was very good, actually. And at the beginning, there was uh, Mamie Flanagan, who was the auctioneer publican's wife, and she was... 
sitting in the pub talking about her husband to uh, another character called the bird. And she says this, it's over a year since he's had a bath. But every Sunday, without fail, he changes his shirt. And then, and she says it real bitterly, and sleeps in it for the rest of the week. And so here we have a picture of hypocrisy, we could say. There are so many people out there today that claim to be Christian. They put on the clothes of, of respectable religion over the unwashed, unchanged, hardened hearts of sin. And it's a picture of a person who is untouched by the true gospel. Now, the true gospel, the real gospel, is all about hope. It's about changed lives. It's about changed hearts. And, and one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians is that God has made spiritually dead sinners alive in Christ forever. And he tells us that this is the mystery of the gospel. Now, when we talk about mystery, usually, if, especially if you're from uh, a particular background, that when you asked particular questions that really there was no answer for, you were told it's a mystery. And then you had to put up with that then, it was a mystery. But when the Bible talks about mystery, it talks about something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. And what was once hidden and now revealed, Paul tells us, is this. That through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, I presume that over your Christian life that you have, as I have, read Ephesians over and over and over again. And all these things just kind of just flow over you, just like I was saying to the children, even as adults, just flow over. And we forget how radical it was for Paul to say this to the Ephesians, and how disturbing and upsetting and enraging it actually was for the Jews to hear that the Gentile dogs were entitled to the same inheritance as they themselves who were the very people of God. But that's what the scripture says, and that's why we're here today, because of what God has done, I hope, in everybody's life, that, he has, that we have been reconciled to God by his grace, and by his grace, we are also reconciled to each other within the church. Now, the question is, why did God do it? And there are many reasons and that, that he did it. But let me just give you one, which, and listen to what he says in um, this verse, verse 10 of chapter 3. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, right? So one of the reasons that God brought us together as church is that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, and listen to what it says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, not only to the people out there, but in the heavenly places, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the angels and the demons, the devil and all his minions, and all the good angels, shall we say, from, from the archangels all the way down, that if we only realized it, look on in awe at what God has done for us. You see, every church is like a trophy cabinet. I have a friend who was uh, an exceptional fisherman. And if you went into his house, he had his man cave. And on all walls were these beautiful cabinets stuffed with trophies. And it was actually an amazing sight. I mean, it was an amazing sight. And I said, Des, where did you get that? And he says, I, I caught a pike on the river barrow that day. And what about this one? Des, I caught a salmon here. And um, 
It was his trophy cabinet. And we are Christ's trophy cabinet, believe it or not. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a trophy of grace. And as you sit in the church, you are in his trophy cabinet. And as the devil and all his who would destroy us and undo us if he could, and all the angels who rejoice at what has been done, that we show the wisdom of God in spite of what we do and who we are because of what he has done. So how is this wisdom then manifested? And it's manifested through holiness, both corporately and personal holiness. Corporately, and we won't look at it today, but it's through maintaining church unity by contributing your talents to the ministry of your local church here. And it's by growing to maturity by speaking, as it says, the truth lovingly to each other. But individually, how are we to display this, grow, this glory? And it's through personal holiness. Listen to what Paul said, in, if you have your Bible there, in Ephesians 4.17. He said, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking right? So he says two things there. Well, he says a lot of things, but I just want to look at two of the words. He says uh, that he insists. That word there, insists, is a really strong word, and it's a court word, and it's, it's like a summons to be a witness. It's that strong to testify, to affirm that what he is saying, what he is really saying here is, um, this is not an option, lads. This is not an option. These are not some helps. When you, when you read these scriptures, these are not, this is not a self-help book in the, in, the, in the true sense of what a self-help book is. This is the, 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 the very word of God. And it is his command that we must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And he says then that he says, I insist on it in the Lord. And what he's talking about there is, what he's saying is, this is where my authority comes from, but also this is where you live your life in the Lord. So, by God's mercy, we have been rescued. This is what he tells us from this present evil age and now live as new creatures in Christ. Now, I'm sure that there are some of you here today that are Christians, maybe, I don't know, 40 years plus. I won't look at anyone in particular, but just, you know, around about then. But in our church, we have really old people, and they remember that far back. And they said that there was a time that they knew every Christian uh, everywhere, because there was only a few of them. Now, they have no idea because back in the 70s, if you remember, and in the 80s, there actually was a move of God. There was the charismatic um, renewal, and there are quite a few people in our church who were converted through that, myself included. And in spite of everything, it was in spite of it that I was actually converted. Nobody has ever done a poll I've never come across it anyway, on the lives of Christians in Ireland now. But let me just give you a poll that was done in um, North America among people who claim to be born-again Christians, right? The poll indicated that there was no appreciable difference between Christians that professed to be born again and the rest of the culture. Seemingly, the Christians, including the Christian leaders, have an atrocious rate of sexual immorality. The supposed evangelical Christians actually have a higher divorce rate than the rest of the population around them, imagine. And that they watch the same amount and the same content of TV as the population at large. One researcher found that um, half of those claiming to be born again say that religions other than Christianity are equally good and true. 
One third of the group believed in astrology and reincarnation. And nearly half those polled, now these are supposed born-again Christians, um, nearly half support abortion rights. Another survey indicated that two-thirds of adults who attend what they call conservative Protestant churches, which I suppose you would call us here, uh, they wondered whether there was such a thing as absolute truth. And it's like in the film, I watched it after going to the play, uh, of the field, and the priest is talking to the American who's going to buy the field, and the priest is warning them, you want to be careful here, and this is what he says, you know, there is only a thin veneer of religion on these people, which he saw to his own cost. Now that is quite depressing. But what somebody did was they took that very same poll of supposed uh, Protestants, conservative Protestants, and they said, show me, take out those Christians who regularly read their Bible, who regularly pray, and who regularly attend church and Bible study, and give me the results. And it transpired that sexual immorality and, uh, and divorce rates took a dive. Their view of truth was uh, in keeping with what the scriptures said. And their thinking was different than mainstream. So the, the regular reading of scriptures and prayer and the regular attended, attendance. So just to say I'm a Christian is, is not good enough. But at the same time, if you are a Christian and say all those things, well, deep down on a personal level, don't we all know that there is work still needing to be done? In Ephesians, Paul paints this graphic portrait how unbelievers live and how we as unbelievers used to at one time live. And he says, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Listen to what he says. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. You see, what Paul is saying to us is that when you became a Christian, or you claim to be a Christian, there must, there must be a distinct break between the past and there must be an actual change of habits. People should be able to clearly see that something has happened in your life and that they ask the question, what happened? I remember reading a book about this young girl who uh, became a Christian and she was so delighted and she ran into her granny, oh granny, 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 I've become a Christian. Well, isn't that great, she says. Now, she says, let's see how long it will take before people begin to notice. Yes, you do confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, but there must be a change. But when it comes to the subject of, 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 of change, we feel the same way as about going to heaven, right? We all want to go to heaven, don't we? we don't want to die to go to heaven and we don't want to go quite yet I have a friend of mine and um, we do business together and he calls in, something seems to upset him, I've noticed a pattern in, 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 in his life and I know he wouldn't mind me saying this but uh, he comes in every now and then and, and bursts in through the door and he calls me, I don't know why, calls me Toby. And he says, hey, Toby, he says, uh, I have a question. And it's always the same question. Ye Christians, he says, ye Christians, you all talk about going to heaven, but none of you went to die and go, do you? And he's quite true. It's, it's quite true. But then, we, of course, we know, we know that there was never supposed to be death, was there? That... Death is something that came into the world. Remember when Jesus stood at, at, at Lazarus' grave and it said that he, he cried or he snorted, but there was just real indignation that death had come into his. 
to his creation. But the point I'm making is that we're all for going to heaven and we're all for making change. Do you remember at the beginning of the year that you, that you decided all your plans? How are they going, by the way? Most of them gone. I gave up years ago. Most of them are, are, are gone by the wayside. Because, you see, it is really, really, really hard work. And we see that when Paul talks about the Christian life. He talks about it as a race, as a marathon. He uses pictures of farming, which is hard work. And there's no instant gratification. You just have to wait for the crop to come along. He uses images of war and soldiers. He uses images of building sites where there's nothing but mess and rubble. You pass any building site and it just looks a complete and utter ruin. But over time, the work slowly starts. When Jesus talks about the Christian life, what does he say? He says, gouge out your eyes. Cut off your hands, take up your cross, die to yourself. I remember years ago when I, when I first became a Christian that I used to go to all these meetings and at the end of the meeting there would be a, a call up to the, to the, to the front for, uh, for a blessing of some sort. And I remember at every meeting going up with the same... Uh, couple of things um, up you go and but you wanted to get to the, to be a whole gang of lads all across there but you, every the biggest the biggest cue was to the speaker because seemingly he was really special and if it got to him that was it he was going to make a difference it never worked I remember I don't mind telling you now but back in those days back in the 80s I used to go up and I'd stand in front of these lads like this like like a child and he'd say, what's wrong? And I'd say, oh, I'm really lazy. And I bite my nails. And so he would put his hand upon me and pray that I would be delivered from laziness and from biting my nails. Took another 10 or 15 years uh, for me to stop biting my nails. I'm not sure about the laziness. But the point was I was looking for a fix. I was given a booklet one time by a man, I suppose who should know better, about the second blessing. Now, I have nothing against the second blessing but there is a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh all the way through your life. I had a poster one time in my house uh, which said, let go and let God. Until our minister came in one day and he says, take that down. I said, oh, why? He said, let go and let God. And he says, there are some things that only God can do, but there are also other things that only you can do. And you see, through the hard and the, and the, and, 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 and the long, I discovered that there's no magic bullets, is there, in this Christian life? No magic bullets. Let's just plod along. Get out of bed in the morning and read it, even though you don't want to. Get down on your knees and pray, even if you don't want to. Drag yourself into it. How often have you came in here and you probably fought the whole way in, and as you pulled up, up went the smiles. Happened in our family for, for, for years. And I'd say if you took the four lads and put us all, if you could get a car big enough and put us all into the car, it would be the very same thing. There are no magic bullets. And so Paul comes along and he seems to, to, to lay this before us. Believers must not live as unbelievers live. Because you see, the Christian life is fundamentally a changed life. And you know that the Christian life, that the, the battleground for the Christian life is in the main, in our minds. Because look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 18. He makes a general statement about unbelievers, and as we were once unbelievers, right? And he says, the unbelievers live in the futility of their mind, right? Now, so he goes on and he says this. In verse 18, he says that the reason that unbelievers live in the futility of their mind is that they are darkened in their understanding and are alienated from the life of God. Now, the reason that they are alienated, as you'll see there in verse 18, the reason that they are alienated from the life of God is that deep down within them, there is an ignorance 
of God, and they do not know him. And the reason for that ignorance is due to the hardening of their hearts due to sin. When you look at all them there this morning, all innocent and happy and smiley, and, and uh, you don't have to get them out of bed. As soon as they hit puberty, boys, oh boys, there's going to be a big change. In our church, I don't know what it's like here, in our church we have a gap of young people. I would value your prayers for my four, from 38 to 24, and not one of them Christian at the moment. Because there is this awful, awful hardness inside us, and unless Christ moves, there's no hope for any of us. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you say, look, I, I, I believe in Christ, and, uh, but you're living just as you always lived, well, then you need to examine whether you truly believe in him. Because there are only two ways to live in this Christian life or in this life as an unbeliever destined for hell or as one who has received salvation and the Lord has changed your lives. And becoming a Christian, as you know, requires turning from your sin to God. But repentance, again, as with a second or a third blessing, repentance is, is not just a one-time event. Yes, there was that one time where you turned and you repented and you accept Christ. But every single day, repentance should define the style of your life. You see, God, without a shadow of a doubt, and if you are a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, radically changed us at the moment of salvation. He talks about giving us a new heart and a new mind. But this is followed up then by this slow, agonizing lifetime of changing into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, Paul is showing us that God works in us through the gospel, through the reading of his word. And that the process is ongoing. Look at verses 22, 23, and 24. He tells us this. Look, he says, look, that we are to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. We are to be made new in the attitude of our minds, and we are to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice, it's to do with our minds. That's where the battleground is, in our minds like as you think about it and as you read Ephesians you come to the realization that you should be able to pinpoint a profound turnabout in your life even if that change took place over a long period of time I know people who say that they became Christians when they were children and that's fine I know people who say I actually don't remember the day I became a Christian. That's fine. But for a lot of people, you can pinpoint a, a particular time when there was a profound turnabout in your lives. That suddenly, maybe you had a foul mouth and that dried up. Suddenly, you had a desire to read the scriptures which you never had. Suddenly, the Bible opened up to you. Suddenly... You began to like people that you hated, and that turns off too, by the way. But I remember, I remember my sister one time, and she got converted in Filey. I got converted first in the early 80s. And she said to me, and I mean, she said to me, I noticed a change in you. It's just as well she moved away because she might change her mind now after all these years. But she said, I noticed a change in you. So she went off to Filey, and she got converted. And she came back and she was all over the place and she, oh, she was praising the Lord and everything. And there, there was an old fellow in our church and I says to him, oh, isn't, isn't it, look, look at her, I said, look at her. Isn't she great? And he just looked and said, yeah, that'll wear off. <laughs> I was so, oh, really? And he's true, it wore off. That honeymoon period just disappeared. And then after that, it was the plodding but she still plods. 
And that's it with, with the whole offer of us. Because you see, the question is, how did the Ephesians and how did we change from one way of life to the other? Now, there's four things, and this is real quick now. Don't think, oh, no, he's going to go on for... But there are four things. Verse 21. They heard about Jesus and were taught the truth in him. That's where it all stands. If you're sitting here this morning and say, I'm a spiritual person and I believe in God, but I'm not sure about Jesus, you're not a Christian. Christ is the center of salvation. Without Christ, there is no salvation. There is only ignorance and, and separation from God. The truth about Christ is the foundation of our faith. It is the truth, as Paul says, that is in Jesus that saves us. There is, this is a huge claim of, of exclusivity. If something is the truth well, then anything different can't be the truth. So if this morning you're sitting here saying, well, I'm not sure about Jesus, well, then can I say, doubt your salvation as well? Because the two cannot be divorced. In order to be saved, you need to see Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. He goes on then and he talks about putting off the old way of life. We need to be taught what the wrong way of life is. And we must, when we see it, give up those things with the help of other Christians. And also, we need to be cleansed by the renewing of our minds because as I say that's so much of where the battle is now if you look at verse 20 we don't have time to look at it but when you go home if you look at verse 21 and 22 and 23 it's like a sandwich you have verse 21 which tells us what what is done on 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 on, on one side as it says there look where am I going Verse 21. Sorry, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak the truth to each other. Sorry, I've become confused. But anyway, but there is a sandwich there that on the one, si on the one side that we are putting something off and we are also putting something on. And in the middle of the sandwich is something that is passive, that is, that is actually done to us. That we are changed in the attitude of our minds. That we have to be cleansed, that we have to have our minds renewed. And what is happening there is that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. We do our part. The putting on and the putting off, and the Holy Spirit does everything else. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Because how did you come to faith, eh? You came to faith because your eyes were opened. Listen to what, what Luke says about, about the disciples. He says, when, when, when Jesus appeared to them, he says, Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. These are the lads on the road to Amos. And he disappeared from their sight. And he asked to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road as he opened the scriptures to us? It is Christ who opens the scriptures. And he does it through, believe it or not, through the preaching of his word. And as you gather together for Bible study. Then in Luke 24, verse 45 were told that Jesus opened the minds of the disciples. When Paul was speaking before Agrippa and he was testifying about himself, he says that God was sending them out what to do. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them 
to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Something was going to be done to them. That's what happened to each and every one of us that are Christians, that our eyes were opened and we were turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And we received then the forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. You know, there was a famous philosopher, Simone Weil, and she used to get desperate headaches. And she was always trying to figure out God. And as far as she was concerned, there was this insolubility of God that she could never, uh, which none of us can, rectify a, a holy God with evil. But what she used to do before she became a Christian was that she used to meditate upon the poems of George Herbert. And there's a, a, a poem by George Herbert that she was meditating on one day. And this is what she says. It was during one of these, or one of those resuscitations, that Christ came down and took possession of me. I had never foreseen the possibility of a real contact, person to person here below, between a human being and God. And if you read that, if you read that poem, you can understand, because it's full of scripture, they can understand that God used it. Because, you see, we are saved by faith alone. Christ has done everything needful for us, and there's nothing except to put our trust in him. But we do know, don't we, that faith is never alone. Listen to what James says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but have no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? So if you're sitting there saying, I'm a Christian, and you're doing nothing, well, then you need to doubt yourself. Faith is not just an intellectual acceptance of the truth about Jesus, that it requires action, and it requires daily action. The root of our salvation is a changed life. It's the plod, I'm afraid. It's the plod every single day of plodding along. Let me just read a verse to finish with from George Herbert and this, in, in this poem. And it's a picture, if you can get it, it's a picture of God and the poet. And he's coming towards God, George Herbert, and next minute he pulls away and God comes after him. And he says, what, what do you want? And he says this, a guest, I answered, worthy to be here. And love said, which is God, you shall be he. The poet says, I, the unkind, ungrateful. Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. And love, which is God, took my hand and smilingly did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord poet said back to God, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. And then the poet turns and says, my dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Now it's worth reading for yourselves. Because there's something really profound in that poem. Notice what he says. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. And the poet jumps up and he says, oh, my dear, then I will serve. Just let me give you a quick example. I mean, useless, uh, well, was a useless golfer. Every time I went out, I scuttled the ball, I topped the ball, I lifted my head, I shanked it, I, 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 I did everything but I went out this day with three other lads who were really low handicappers, and it was just, just the way it was drawn. And we went out, and I was atrocious. But on two holes, two holes, I scored a point on each hole. Any of you that play golf know what I mean. And when we came in, to my surprise, I discovered that I was on the third-placed team and got a lovely bit of crystal 
And the lads were all delighted with themselves, and I was mortified because I played so badly. I mean, I missed a six-inch putt at one stage. But I said to them, you know something, lads? You wouldn't have even got that without my two points. And they said, you know, you're right. Now, the problem is that's the way we are with God so often. Our God, there's my two points, and you did the rest. But that's not the way Christianity works. And this is what he's saying there. He says, my dear, the poet says to God, then I will serve. And what God says is, before you serve, you must sit down and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. First of all, to truly serve God, you need to come to faith in Christ. And the only way that we can come to faith through Christ is through the power of Jesus Christ and our final hymn now the power of the cross. Amen. So let's, we're going to pray now. Oh, sorry. I'm, 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 think, I'm, I'm thinking I'm back in Kilkenny, where for the moment we're going, to, we're going to now take up the offering. Father God, without um, your help, not for one minute would we stand. Lord, as we read about you, about through creation, that if you for one minute stopped your work, everything would disappear in an instant. And it is because of your ongoing work and because of you exerting your power in our lives and in your creation that we are here this morning. Now, Father, there's so much about the Christian life that we don't understand. And there's so much of it that we would like to get through quickly and just to be changed in an instant. And, Lord, I suppose it's all to do with instant gratification and the way everything is offered up to us these days, that you can have it now. Why wait? Why save? Have that nice television this minute. And, Lord... It seeps into your church and it seeps into the Christian mind. But Lord, help us to realize that if we could only be seen as we are truly seen, that Lord, we are a spectacle to behold because you look on us as you look upon your own son, Jesus Christ, that you look on us as people who are perfect, people who are ready for heaven in, 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 in a sense. And that whenever that time comes, whether we're taken suddenly, quickly, or whether it takes time, nothing changes. That your hand was put upon us at a particular time in our lives. And you have promised us the promise that someday we will be presented spotless and blameless before you. Now, you've told us that in this life that we are going to come upon problems and cares and concerns. And we just think especially of Rebecca now and Annie in hospital. Lord, you know their situation. You know how ill they are. And we just lift them up before you, that they might know your consoling hand. And Lord, that you would give the doctors insight on how to deal with their conditions. Lord, we think of our children that, that, that are in Sunday school at the moment. Lord, we think of the, those that are teaching them. God, help them to see what a privilege it is to be able to teach, to be able to take these little children and, and Lord, to be able to form ideas in their minds before the world gets at them. Lord, I pray that as they read the verses, Lord, the only thing that keeps me going as regards my own children is, Lord, that they're full of your word. They can sing all the choruses still. They have full psalms in their minds. And Lord, it is you that has to flick the switch. So look upon our children, we pray, and have mercy upon them. Lord, we thank you for the work that goes on here in, in, in 
um, in the church. We think of the International Cafe. We think of the SALT project. Lord, we thank you that people sometimes just walk in off the street. Lord, there's many here that just walked in one day and never left. Lord, we pray for those that are involved. We pray for Sam, that you would bring him back refreshed. Pray for David here. Lord, we pray for the elders. We pray for the committee. Lord, I pray for the person who cleans the toilet. Because everything, Lord, is good in your eyes. Help us, we pray, that as we go from here, that as we sing this closing praise of the power of the cross, Lord, that we would make it a prayer and a meditation so that as we go out to meet the world, as we leave the barracks of this church, as we go out to our various spheres of life, that we might be built up and we might have an eye for an opportunity to speak, that we might have an ear that we can get along somebody, alongside somebody. And Lord, that you would give us an enlightened tongue that would be able to bring a message of comfort to someone this week. So bless us, we pray now, as we sing this final hymn and go our way. So let's stand and sing then, The Power of the Cross. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. <laughs>